I would say just remember the world is huge and there's lots of opportunity and focus on who you ideally serve because that's what will allow you to find those clients, attract them and close them on your offer because you're so aligned with the purpose that you're serving. And I think you touched on this a little bit. You felt burned out, you know, like uh, this is kind of tiring. What am I doing here? And I think one key that I've been using to stay really grounded in what I'm doing is just like the vision of like who I'm helping, why I'm doing it, and then being selective and picky about who I work with. Welcome to another episode of Hyperi Presents. In this episode, I talk to Todd Larson. Todd is a software engineer turned serial entrepreneur. He quickly launches small projects to large audiences with the help of influencers. And he has large retainers with businesses he helps scale. In this episode, you'll learn how you can launch a successful business without having a huge audience. We also talk about the power of Facebook groups and how to grow your Facebook followers thanks to those groups. My name is Unique, co-founder of Hype Fury, and I hope you enjoy the show. Tell us how you got started in software engineering and what you're up to these days. Hey, Yannick. Yeah, first of all, thanks for having me on here. You know, I got started into software just building little apps for social media and advertising. Quick little campaigns, stuff that only lived a, a couple of weeks, but I found that it was really unsatisfying. And so that's when I moved into product work that was a bit more longer term, like really investing in stuff. And I'm sure you can relate to this, like the repeated, you know, over time iteration of Hype Fury. That's what I wanted. And so at that point, I joined Groupon joined them during kind of the stratospheric point where they were acquiring companies left and right, all the competitors globally. And we had to figure out like how to integrate all that as well as continue to grow revenue at the same time. So it was very much taking apart the plane while it was mid-flight and reassembling it and then making it go faster from there. So that was a crazy experience where I got to really learn about iterating deeply on product and scaling it and what it takes to be at scale. From there, I went into the startup world. I wanted to see what it took to go from bare metal scratch. And so I joined Digit.co. Ended up being there for almost seven years. This was in the fintech space. Felt like an eternity in startup time. Took it from, you know, when I joined, there were like, I don't know, a handful of users and they were all investors really and helped figure out how do we grow from there. And when I left, you know, it was an eight figure ARR. Run us through a little bit what you did there. It was amazing to wear every hat during that experience. So, I mean, a little bit of everything, starting from just engineering, you know, built shipping features, but then how do we actually scale this out to go from saving people money, right? This is a very sensitive thing. We're actually moving money through the ACH system. How do we go from a highly manual process where we're keying in this kind of stuff manually and then actually automating people's personal finance and doing this in a flawless way? And so this was every part of the system. On the backend side, as well as you know, the actual product-facing features. We started with an SMS chatbot, and it became uh, a mobile app two years after we launched. And through this process, we started as a free product, and we had to figure out how to monetize, how to actually figure out if what we had was worth paying for, and double down on that sooner rather than later, and not just kid ourselves. Like, if this isn't a product that we can make money on in an actual business, let's all go home and do something else. And so. I like that that was like a decision we made early on to really monetize. We chose that over stratospheric growth just from a like daily active user perspective, because if it's not a monetizable business, like what's the point really? It's business in the end. What were some of the features or like tweaks in the business model that really, you know, interesting to talk about? 
I think figuring out how we could transition who we already had, really like having the conviction to say, we're going to draw a line in the sand and we're going to charge for this service. And we're going to recognize that we're going to take a huge haircut and we need to be okay with that because recognizing that a lot of the early customers might've just been tire kickers, not that ideal customer profile that actually is going to be helped the most by what the service was. And so we just needed to make that tough call and say, we're going to charge for this. And then what is the actual pathway for the people that did want to stay on board and do it in a way that, you know, we're communicating clearly why this is happening, you know, how the value was essentially stayed the same. But the amazing thing is through this transition, we were able to keep over 50% of our original free customers and transition them into paid users and then grow from there. And so we were hoping, we are like, if we could keep like 30%, we'd be thrilled. And so it was awesome to see that support. Then it was just like off to the races growing from there and what value we needed to add to the product to keep and retain our current customers. And then just adding into the funnel, getting more and more of the ideal customers into the product from kind of the ground level too. We did a little bit of the same with Hyperior. Well, we didn't transition from free to paid, but we did make a conscious decision about, you know, we're going to focus on people who are already invested in Twitter and social media. We're going to put our efforts on those people where we know they're going to stick around. Tell me a little bit, you know, how you made the decision, what things would be included in the paid version, you know, what would be things that people really wanted and stayed for? So we actually, we took a hard stance and said, there is no free version. We have a free trial, but what we have here is valuable enough and the value we provide is great enough to charge for. And we had a firm belief that, you know, there's really only a couple of ways to monetize. And that was to either sell in the fintech space specifically, it was to sell data, which we had, you know, just like an oath that we would never do that. It's too common in the fintech space. It's something we'd never do. So Uh, We quickly nixed that. Another option was referral-based products, kind of like the Credit Karma model, right? That can start out fine, but it can easily slip into the realm of like misaligned incentives, like this is a better margin for the business, so we're going to suggest it, but it may not be the best product for the customer. So it's like a slippery slope. So we didn't like that either. In the end, we're like, all right, we're going to make a killer product that people are willing to pay for. It's like the easiest way to do it and not monetize the customers themselves, but monetize the product. That was the, the route we took. And so then it was just like, all right, well, what do we need to make this product do that it isn't already doing? Thankfully, it was there at that point. We just needed to keep adding value to retain. You know, the biggest thing with Digit is we were progressing people through a journey of financial health. So people will come in with a certain baseline of financial health, and then they would obviously be getting healthier over time. So we had to build out more products to carry them on for the next problems that, that they had in their financial life. How did you measure wealth, which is the, the, the balance on their account? What? Well, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of crude ways to do it, but we invest a lot into our AI platform. The problem is that right now, fintech is very fractured. There's kind of a war going on with data. Banks don't necessarily want to give it up. They recognize the value of it now. And that's kind of changing to some degree, but it's still not settled. And so basically what that means is most fintech companies have kind of a, just a partial picture of someone's finances due to various reasons. They maybe have some archaic like credit union. There's like so many edge cases when it comes to people's financial lives. Most of it is a partial picture. So it's about like, what can you do with the information that you do have to help them and then get feedback from them to maybe fill in the gaps. So you stayed there for seven years. Why did you leave? And then what did you do? 
Well, at that point, it was kind of like I had done so many things. You know, I'd done IC work, just coding in the trenches for a long time. And then I moved into management and it was, you know, a lot of hiring and team building. And that was amazing. But I was just kind of felt like it was time, you know, for something new and, you know, wanted to, to see what that was exactly. I knew it wasn't necessarily just a straightforward, you know, startup. So I, you know, took some time to decompress and then to really just start talking to other founders and just really like kind of networking on Twitter, on Facebook, and just kind of seeing what people were up to. And then also scratching my own itch with some other micro SaaS. You know, I launched one via Twitter last summer for the flipping niche. And that was a lot of fun. It was like a sprint to deliver this and uh, really help a very small niche community. And so that was something that really was fun and, you know, continues to help people today. So yeah, that's kind of the quick and dirty on that. A little bit of background. So when you left the company, did you start freelancing a little bit consultancy and then start, you know, building stuff on the side? Because, you know, we've talked about many things you did. You experiment with many different things. Why did you do that? Yeah, well, I like working at different scales, sometimes simultaneously. So while I was working on this quick MVP that I built myself for the flipping community, I was also doing some consulting for a fortune five company, you know, without getting too specific, like very, very big scale, very big impact. And that was awesome, but it's a different kind of awesome than you get from startups. And so that kind of opened my eyes to realizing that I could provide value in different ways at different levels and scale my expertise more impactfully across founders and across companies instead of just doubling down on just my own startup. And that's really kind of what led to me like wanting to consult and coach and work more with people because I can affect more by working with more people. Let's drill a little bit more into like the flipping thing you ate. Why did you choose that and what did you create and, and what kind of traction did you see? Yeah. So Flip Tool was, you know, I basically was just hanging out on money Twitter, honestly. Like that's kind of where I came in contact with Hype Fury. And, you know, I, I actually, this is when I came like, Popped my head out of the trenches of startup land. I had not really messed with Twitter in a long time. Opened a new Twitter account. Somehow, I want to say it might have been a rogue wealth tweet. It was like one of the first things I saw. And then that pulled me into the money Twitter world. And I started seeing all these things, saw Hype Fury, and just started seeing what was going on. And so I saw clearly they had these different worlds and these different niches within money Twitter. And so one was flipping. And so I really, at the same time, I think approximately the same time, Coach Joe Hart was really blowing up. And so his program was launching and people were just having insane wins. And I became a member of the community and I saw what they were doing. I'm a flipper at heart. Like I've done more on clothing uh, and shoes in the past than toys. But so I was very intrigued with like what they were doing. And I saw an opportunity as a software engineer to like optimize that and say, well, this is an amazing process you have here, but we could add a software layer to that to make it even better. And so that was really what I was focused on. And, you know, Joe was like heads down working on his thing. And, you know, we were able to connect throughout this process, but he's so busy doing his amazing stuff. I was able to, you know, focus on the app and work with a couple of his guys to kind of push that out and help people with it. So it was a, an amazing time. It started with like a tweet with a Loom video and a Figma prototype. I mean, it was quick and dirty, but given the response of kind of what could be built, that gave me the conviction to double down and actually build it and then, you know, get revenue within, well, on launch day, I had revenue. What did you see in that community and what did you build? So this was a mobile app. It was really a PWA. So 
progressive web app. So it has a lot of the capabilities of a native app, but for a lot of reasons, it's better to be able to build this web app because you can do cross-platform things. And in general, it's a cheaper way to develop and you can work a lot faster. And so that was one key. I was able to do a tweet with my kind of concept that I had come to mind after watching the process. And then based on the success of that tweet, then I built the app and shipped that in about three weeks. What was the tweet? It was literally just a tweet of a video of me talk a loom of me talking through like, hey, I think I tagged Coach Joe. And then, you know, it was like, this is what I've been doing, you know, to help my flipping. Right. And, you know, it got a bunch of retweets and likes and people. Were, and then I dropped a wait list the next day. I was just like hustling to quickly lay the kind of groundwork for a funnel. So then I had, you know, the attention and then I had a small wait list, kept building the wait list, kept promoting it through my development period. And then, you know, launched it. And that was all within about three weeks, maybe four weeks. Tell us a little bit, what did you build and what was the problem you were solving? It was basically a scraper, scraping inventory and a way of finding inventory for these items that people were flipping. So these are bolos, be on the lookouts. So these are products that are going to be very profitable on maybe on sale at particular places. And so it started with just being able to scrape inventory for local Walmarts and then pull up the UPC code so you could quickly go and store pop that in, find out where it is and just get in and out. It's all about optimizing time. That's the biggest constraint for flippers. So buying time. You saw people going into stores, checking, okay, is there something here? No, there's not. Or yeah, maybe there is. And you were like, hey guys, why don't you just use the power of the internet? And also, I mean, there were a lot of people still using the internet, but they were going like tab by tab, opening up and you know, looking at various sites to check this out. And there's a lot of manual work. And so this was like, we already know what the products are. They're pretty consistent for a few weeks. We can check real-time inventory and just have all that in one view. And that was really what Flip Tool is. It's just buying time. It's really that simple. I think that those are one of the best you know, ways to sell a product is, you know, what can you do to sell people time as the most valuable resource? This already is an interesting learning. Join a community, see what's there, and see how you can add value with your own skills. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I spent a lot of time just kind of observing, you know, several months really just kind of seeing what they're doing and get to know the people in the community, build some trust, build some credibility, just really listen. I'd say that's the biggest thing is pay attention and listen. Instead of what a lot of people do is they already have an idea in their head, they join a community and then they start just sending stuff and then, you know, they get kicked or banned or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. You, you need to really like come with an open mind rather than an agenda. Okay. So the flipping tool. Interesting. And so you moved on. What was your next step? Yeah. So then, you know, I worked with a, another influencer to start on a, I guess I'll call it a mindset app. And, you know, this is around creating your own, recording your own affirmations. And so we got to a pretty good launch. Again, launched that in about six weeks, maybe. Instead of me building up that credibility with the audience before that launch, I was able to kind of leverage the audience of the influencer. And so that's like kind of a cheat, like if you can't build the audience, you can just bolt on. You know, I think the flipping was still, I was bolting on, but I took more time because I was the figurehead and I was the authority. How did you connect with the influencer? That was through the DMs on Twitter. I think I actually, this is interesting going way back. My original idea about the flipping was just a crude script and I actually was tweeting at Dropship Shaw. And I was like, hey, check this out. Like, you know, blah, blah, blah. And he was like, oh, that's interesting. Let's talk. And so we ended up connecting and talking. And then he, I think, referred me to Tiger Joseph, the influencer. And so, yeah, it's just like, you know, when you connect with people and add value and see where things could work, 
things happen. It's just like classic networking. So, you know, we, we launched that app and that was a quick launch to immediate revenue, uh, you know, recurring revenue with subscription model. And I think that helps obviously when you have the audience already. So again, that was a progressive web app. That's the key, I think, to really quick quality. It's not going to be perfect. There's going to be compromises and, you know, it's likely that particularly in the case of Subself and this meditation app, we needed to change some things and refactor some things into the native app because we found out like the audio quality on the PWA side just is not quite there, but it was enough for us to validate and get some early customers and say like, this is worth it. So I think that's a big approach is like, what can you do to ship fast to be wrong or right as fast as possible and just like get out there to invalidate or validate your assumptions as fast as possible. What kind of like revenue models do you create between you and the influencer? You know, you're the technical guy, but without him, you know, you probably wouldn't get any revenue. So at that point, before my business was scaling up, it was more of like a partnership, like 50-50. It's like you bring really the market and the sales elements and as the influencer, and then I bring, you know, the product and the tech. But at this point, it's rare to take that kind of deal because... There's a lot of demand as I've been able to scale what I'm doing with founders to where it's really just like either a monthly retainer or a kind of 90 day sprint to get them to a certain point. It really just depends on the needs of the client. Let's move on. What was uh, the next uh, the next step? <laughs> Let's see. Okay. So I started a third one. I was about to start a third one. And this is actually prospected on Facebook. And so at this point, I to kind of step back, there were some people I really admired on Twitter. Shout out Oliver Canton, shout out Jack Butcher. Those two guys, I love what they do on Twitter just as people and, you know, as content creators. And so started to dig into that a little bit and like what they've done to level up and learned about a coaching program, uh, traffic and funnels. And so I joined with that. And that was a huge level up for me in many ways. But it, the biggest way is it showed me what Facebook could be and do. Like I had avoided Facebook like the plague. I had not touched Facebook for 10 years. Then I started getting active on there. So then I was like, oh, this is interesting. So I started developing the next idea, the next SaaS, the next micro SaaS. And then I'm like, okay, is this scalable? Can I have 10 different SaaS? Is this the best way? And this is where I started to shift with the idea of like, if I could partner with and help like actually create and level up founders through either coaching or consulting. These great ideas can come to market and I can kind of help in that way versus like being bogged down with 10 different companies. And it's like, I'm not, you know, I'm redlined and it's just not working. So that was the big shift. And so I actually found a client, my first coaching client in this capacity through Facebook group, who is like an ideal customer profile for the SaaS itself. And so we actually partnered so that he paid me for coaching. And then, you know, I helped him with the, and kind of gave him this idea for the SaaS. And so that's going through kind of final development launch now. And that's been exciting to, to build the wait list throughout that. And so it's, I've been showing him what I did, you know, to do these other apps. And so it's been cool to see like, is this repeatable? Can I transfer it to someone else? And so since then I've taken on more clients and proven that it's also true for them too. So it's, that's kind of the coaching element uh, that's been really fun. And you started with experimenting with the Facebook groups. How did you decide what groups to join and what were your first you know, things you did in those groups? So I would say, honestly, I learned so much from the Twitter growth tactics from you, Yannick, and the Hype Fury team from Oliver Canton's free Twitter growth guide. I took a lot of the Twitter growth tactics, but applied them to Facebook. And so, you know, what this came down to is finding groups that are relevant to what my niche and offer is 
and was at the time. You know, at the time I was really just focused on building apps for people. It was much more broad in general, lower tickets and just, yeah, less specific. I was basically doing what everybody says on Twitter, like find conversations, add value. Like it's just like a, you know, at this point it's like a mantra. So I would find groups that were irrelevant. I'd find posts that people were making and I would just add my two cents. Gary V, I think, has his like whatever 18 cents a day, you know, build an audience. And it's just like add your two cents to nine posts. And so it was basically that. And then I started writing my own posts to really just establish authority. I wasn't like pitching anything. I was just like, here's what I think about XYZ. And it was cool because half the room would hate me and the other half would like love it. And so that was like good. That meant I was really onto something. And so I used that feedback mechanism. That's when you saw real traffic, real, real traction. Eh? You saw your following on Facebook, you know, exploded. Yeah. I don't know how much of this was like specifically the content I was doing and how much of it was like maybe Facebook feeding me because I was an old profile. I was coming back to life, but I went from 300 friends. Well, I got maxed out, but between friends and followers, I had over 6,000 in two weeks. It was just like crazy. I was posting three times a day and video, text posts. I was you know, on like my Ty Lopez shit, you know, like inspirational. It was like, I was trying anything and everything and it went fast. But what I found is that not everybody obviously was my ideal customer profile. And so I weeded that out, but it was an interesting learning and like quickly getting attention and, you know, how to do that through Facebook. What kind of posts got the most traction, both like comments and likes and where you saw, whoa, this, I'm getting a lot of follows to this. I would say anything that kills a sacred cow in a good way. And so, you know, one is like, I work with a lot of founders who have these great ideas. And a lot of times they feel held back by the fact that they don't have a technical co-founder and that they cannot proceed with that. And so, you know, a post would be about how you could get started and that you don't actually need a technical co-founder to get traction. And something like that would really rile people up because maybe they've been held back for a while on that assumption. And then, so it really triggers something. A lot of times it'd be inbound messages. People would be like, hey, I saw your post in SaaS Growth Hacks Group or whatever. And then I would start a conversation. I'd be like, tell them a little bit more and then move them to a, to a phone call from there, just over a messenger. And then, you know, from there, it's just basically like a discovery or a triage call, depending on how much depth you've gone into on the messenger side. And then, you know, see if it's a good fit for what the actual offer is. For people with like a, a technical background who want to help more the, the, the marketing founders, what kind of luggage do they need to bring? What kind of background do they need? And how did you come up with your offer? How do you work? What, what do people pay for and what do they get? I've gone through lots of iterations. And I think it's something that you're always figuring out is, you know, what does the market want now? And those needs might change. And so when I first started this, it was just like, I'll build you an MVP, just like help you build apps. And I think the best place to start for anyone is to get depth of experience and expertise. So develop the skill set. You know, before you can do any sort of like high ticket consulting or, or sales, you need to have a obviously a skill that adds the value that justifies the high ticket. So I would suggest anybody, you know, spend time doing what it is that you need to do, what the actual skill is. And so at that point, you can kind of step out and figure out what it is that people actually need based on your experience that you've gathered. So what I've found, though, is generally is what you can do to take it off, take something completely off the table for someone, really just take it off their hands entirely, the much easier it is to sell. And so what that has meant is I've had to go through, really, it's kind of an identity shift of not how can I do this, but 
who do I need to bring in to make this happen? Who is the best team to assemble? Who are the you know right people to bring in at the right time to execute this best? Um, and so it allows me to have a bigger offer that then is adding more value, making a bigger impact, has more margin in to hire people and subcontract. And the clients are way better because they have budgets and the problems are meaty and they're fun to work on. And it's just like my coaches who I still pay these coaches, by the way, they help me all the time. I just had a call earlier today. It's a, it's a constant investment in myself to, to get to this point and to level up. You know, they say you need to ascend the avatar and that's a great way to really like find the people that are not going to nickel and dime you be the freebies, you know, you want to say like, what's the biggest value you can provide and who needs that the most? I think that's a great way to approach it. So you're like the, the fractional CTO, you, you know, you're there maybe 10, 20% of the time, you help them with the big questions. And you probably you're also looking for, you know, who can replace me full time? How do you go about that? How do you find someone? My goal is to not be like, I never want to be a linchpin in any of my clients' businesses, but to actually, you know, just help them level up and then have, you know, the stability to keep that at that same level and grow from there. So never want to be like the linchpin. So it's always about firing myself from the engagement. Like, all right, how do we make sure we have the right people in here to take what I put in place and go from there? And so you mentioned that you landed a client with an interesting uh, retainer. How do you structure those deals? How do you come up with, okay, this is the amount of money I'm going to ask and this is you know what I'm going to deliver? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, like if you're going to get into, you know, five figure, six figure ticket prices, you need to, I mean, you're not just like pulling a number out of, you know, what, like you need to make sure that, you know, first of all, what is it you're providing? Does it have anything near that kind of scope? And one way to think of that is like, what is the cost of inaction? What is the cost, the alternative cost for the ideal customer for them to not buy your service program, whatever it is, consulting? And that's a good way to kind of anchor your price. How do you create that red flag for them? How do you create that? Well, if you don't do this, then it's going to cost you 10K a month anyway or more. Well, yeah, I mean, one way to just think about it is this is happening usually through the sales call, but, you know, is to understand what they've already invested. That's also going to help them to solve this problem. That's going to help them see, you know, the pain and the urgency of it and also help you bail on it if it's not a good fit. Like if they have not invested anything. And it's a even a, like a lower ticket thing. There's a, like, what are the odds that they, you know, are going to close on this if they've literally tried nothing on their own? So, you know, it comes back to like the kind of the meme on Twitter, people like sliding into the DMs, like, how do I make a million dollars? And it's like, they've done nothing to figure that out. And so you, you need to make sure you're getting those people that maybe have tried to solve the problem a lot on their own already, are super frustrated, have spent a lot of money already, and can clearly see why it would cost this much because... The alternative is so expensive. And when you, you know, kind of ascend your avatar and have that higher end ideal customer, they're more interested in time than money. And so it's like, what can you do to save them time? They don't, honestly don't care about that, the price point that much. And that's where you can offer to take a whole piece of the business off of their plate and they'll thank you for that. And then it's up to you, obviously, to deliver on that by bringing in the right people if it's not you yourself. So the like five, six figures, you know, well, at least five figures a month, six figures a year for one client, which, you know, you're probably not working full time on. How do you decide who to work with and how do you scale 
your business because I think you're comfortable with what you're doing right now. I think you want to yeah. grow that. But it's also, yeah, you are the limiting factor. There's not a lot of I software. I, I recognize the bottleneck. And this is one reason why I continue to pay for coaching because they help me to see through this. And so one strategy that I'm working right now is how do I extract value from myself and other people, other experts in Silicon Valley in my network and productize that? And so, you know, working with former executives that, you know, without getting specific, they've done incredible things in their career. How can I extract some of that value? Maybe, you know, they've got some free time that, you know, there's some standard best practices that are kind of like Silicon Valley secrets that aren't talked about a lot. And so how can I extract some of that to supplement what I'm doing and productize kind of that, that stuff and bring in, you know, I'm thinking of as kind of a chief counsel. So if I'm a CTO, who is the COO, who is the CMO, who is the CGO? All these different roles and and sort of specialists I can bring in to consult on a specific case. And so the higher the ticket, the more likely the satisfaction is based on a result more than like how many hours did you spend? You know, it's it's totally separated from that. So it's about who do we need to talk to and connect and bring in to do this the right way. And so it's just it's a totally different approach. Can you share one of those Silicon Valley secrets? Uh, I mean, I wouldn't say it's a secret, but I would say it's a specific method of the OKR planning process. That would be one example. So this is a fantastic model for businesses that need to really standardize growth and set specific targets. I would say it's more like a growth stage company rather than a startup stage. You're kind of still figuring things out, getting your sea legs at the early stage. But later on, OKR has become a huge thing. And so what is the process that top tech companies use to do that. And, you know, there's a lot of blog posts about it, but there's a lot of details. And so that's the kind of thing like that can be productized, delivered to a client and, you know, supplementing me on Zoom one-to-one. And so there's training materials that can be used there to kind of help and be deployed when helpful, depending on the client. I think there are a lot of people, be it technical or like, the business side, you know, they, they've done a job for 10 years, they quit their job, they start freelancing, doing consultancy work. And then, you know, I've had the same thing where, you know, I was making easy six figures a year with my consulting stuff. And then somehow, you know, you just, I lost like, uh, how do you call that? The the drive to keep doing it, you know? I, yeah. I made a good living, but I thought, what am I doing here? So, what I'm wondering is, you know, everybody with probably 10 years of experience in one field, they probably go through the same like thing, you know, quit their job, start freelancing. And then I think for a lot of people, it, I guess it's hard to step outside of that thing because probably 90% of you know people do that. But then to take the next step to build like a business, what you're doing, like outsourcing stuff or going and testing all sorts of side projects. What would be your advice to those people and how, how did you, you know, find your path? I think I would say keep an abundance mindset. That's honestly one of the biggest things is to not be scarce about it. I think for me, a big shift was to get out of the kind of worker bee mentality of like, I need to do everything. Like I'm in the trenches, like I'm doing all the stuff and you need to kind of level up from that and think about who can help. And so I think you know, really being dialed in on who they want to serve most, who is the ideal person and really specific 
I think a lot of people will think, well, that's too specific. There can only be one. Like my ideal is this specific person that I have in mind. And there was only one of that person. And I'll admit this caught me off guard initially. I thought, well, my ideal customer, you know, was the founder of Digit. You know, like I had an amazing time. I was there for seven years. It took me a couple months to realize there's a whole world of people like that out there that I can work with. And I don't have to just only work with one at a time. And so I would say like focusing on like who is your ideal person to help and keep an abundant mindset, knowing that the world is huge. Facebook is huge. There's, you know, 2 billion people on there or whatever. You know, I'm connecting with people internationally. A lot of my clients are not even domestic in the U.S., and that's something that is more exciting than I even realized I could have. You know, I was just working in the States at a, at a U.S. You know, tech startup. So I would say just remember the world is huge and there's lots of opportunity and focus on who you ideally serve, because that's what will allow you to find those clients, attract them and close them on your offer because you're so aligned with the purpose that you're serving. And I think you touched on this a little bit. You felt burned out, you know, like uh, this is kind of tiring. What am I doing here? And I think one key that I've been using to stay really grounded in what I'm doing is just like the vision of like who I'm helping, why I'm doing it, and then being selective and picky about who I work with and not just like, oh, it's work. I need to take it. That scarcity mindset creeping in. You need to really like hold your ground and keep that ideal customer in mind. Interesting. And so, you know, we talked about how you approach, well, you join Facebook groups, you talk about, you know, your vision and you talk about things that are not obvious and we talk about the purple cows, I guess. Yeah. The things that people take for granted or whatever that maybe are no longer useful and no longer serving the industry or the best practice. I mean, best practices get phased out all the time. You know, is there a best practice that you could look at and phase out and just really lean into? I mean, people love strong opinions. That's like how you start to express authority and leadership. And then you, you also talked about, you know, you get people on on a call, you know, like a, a sales call, a qualifying call. How would you advise others to do that? You know, it is it is on the one hand, it's time consuming. On the other hand, you need to do it to in order to find out if they're serious. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a numbers game. It's about having the right conversation. But I'll tell you a trick that I have is I actually have VAs that do a lot of that for me. And so I just have a system where I honestly just reply to conversations in Messenger. I don't even post on Facebook anymore. It's like, they log into a virtual machine, have a whole procedure with specialized software that helps track all the posts they're engaging with. They're engaging like as me. And, you know, this is like, it works really well. It means I just have to respond to messages and people who are really interested in what I have to offer. And they don't even know what I'm offering. It's more that they receive a message from me that's just like, genuinely interested, you know, not like salesy at all. It's just like, Hey, how's it going? You know, thanks for connecting. Then they see my profile typically. And my profile is full of, you know, it's fully primed as they say, you know, full of all the things I do. And they're like, Whoa, this is interesting. And then they'll often respond and then it, you take it from there. Interesting. And so you have VAs who are reaching out to like your new followers. And do you also have like VAs who still post stuff in the groups? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then, well, what they're actually doing, they'll post like post standalone posts, but what they do is uh, harvest posts that they think would be good for me to add value to. So I just get a quick short list and then I pop in there and drop some comments. So it's like, I have what I call RGAs, revenue generating activities. And I'm like, how can I time box these? And RGAs are anything that like get eyes on my content, brings in le potential leads. And so that's like social media engaging. So I'm just always trying to compress that so I could be off my phone as much as possible. And, you know, it's one reason why I love Hype Fury so much. Shout out Hype Fury. 
I don't have to be on my phone all the time. And so, you know, that's a big thing for me. I want to dig in a little bit more here because this is really interesting. How do you find these VAs? How do you train them? And, you know, how... This became a huge thing so much so that I have a service around it. So it's like if, you know, if you want to check it out, it's uh, I did a play on it. It's uh, VAMOS, V-A-M-O-S, Virtual Assistant Machine Operating System.com. So V-A-M-O-S.com. And basically what it is, is my process was I had an SOP, Standard Operating Procedure, which was what I was doing for months. So the thing to keep in mind is I didn't just jump into this, this automation. I did it. For a while, I felt the pain of it. I'm like, God, I'm spending a lot of time on this. Like, I'm not spending as much time with my daughter as I'd like. I don't want to be doing this. This is not why I got into you know online business. So then I was thinking, okay, this is so easy. This part of the job, I'm just adding value on the comments. Everything else, someone else could do. And so I already had some VAs that I've known for you know like a year doing other random things. And so I just took a stab at it. Recorded a Loom video. They're super sharp. They work so hard. They're very thoughtful about like what they're doing, very engaged in the task itself and the results are fantastic. So I just have to reply to the messages that come in and then add value to the comments that they show in the spreadsheet. And they have this tool, it's like a Chrome extension. My business partner on this venture uh, made the software. Another SaaS founder, it's called organicecrm.com if you want to check it out. And basically it's a Chrome extension that anybody could use, not just VAs, but it really expedites the process of organic Facebook marketing by really gathering all of this like organic marketing data into a single spreadsheet. Interesting. And so it gathers information of people you interact with? Yes. Yeah, so you can kind of keep people at different lead stages. It pulls in their profile. So you can be like, this person needs this lead magnet. I'm going to send this over a messenger. You can see who needs a follow-up as their messenger. It's almost like a CRM, you know, for organic Facebook marketing. And so the idea is instead of being just fractured, spread everywhere, like I definitely felt this pain for quite too long, really, you're just like posting everywhere and then you're getting notifications and you're like, oh shit, I need to follow up with these people and it's just a mess. So it brings order to the chaos of your notifications, Trey. I mean, anybody, any social network, whether it's Facebook or other, you know how crazy that can get. So if you're trying to be serious about money and your business, you need to have order around that. And so that's what this offers. Interesting. And so you actually, you know, you outsource like the, your top of funnel work, at least a part, you know, you say, okay, these are interesting. Well, the other part is ads. And so that's why I was kind of like, what can I do to automate all of that top of funnel? Yeah, exactly. So, and you also do ads on Facebook? So I drive kind of the, the other part of my funnel that's not posting in others groups is I have my own group for SaaS founders. And so I drive ads to that group. And I do things like go live weekly with an executive coach where we talk about leadership. I'm actually going to be launching a joint program with him, Stephen Bates. He's an incredible, he's been an executive coach for like 25 years. And we're working together where I'm more tactics and strategy. He's like leadership, you know, ways of thinking, ways of working. And so we'll be pairing together. And so we go live in the group every week. We've been doing this for months now. And so, yeah, Facebook ads go straight into the group. And then I've got an email list. And I send, there's a kind of a drip campaign on the list. And then I send out a random camp, like broadcast email, maybe every 10 days or so mixed in with value emails with kind of a blatant offer. Like, are you my ideal person? Do you need help in this way? Book a call. And I get a number of calls, you know, every week out of that, just a direct offer. It's not salesy. It's just like, do you have this problem? Here's how I can help call to action. 
simple. It's interesting. And so with ads, you drive traffic to your group. People join the group, which is free. In the group, you have a post, maybe the, the pinned post, hey, subscribe to my newsletter. And then, you know, for every... Actually, I gather the email up front. They have to give up the email to even get in. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I capture that as a uh, question. They opt in as well. Uh, exactly. So there's two ways. So I'm actually capturing at both places. And I don't love the friction there, but I insist on getting an email from anybody who joins. And so whether they're coming from an ad, they would opt in on the landing page, get directed to the group. There is a place to enter in. Hey, we've got a special training around this specific topic. Pop in your email and I'll send it to you. So it's actually another lead magnet to supplement the group itself, but they do enter in their email a second time. And then they answer another couple questions and then they get auto entered into the group from that auto accepted. And, you know, I started that in October. I think I've got over 300 founders in there and those are my ideal clients. And they're just basically getting nurtured over time. They're not all in the buying pocket at the same time. And so it's just like, they're getting exposed to me consistently being valuable over time until they're ready to buy and are in that actual need space and then it's like easy and it's not salesy it's just like this is what i do i'm not changing i'll be here when you're ready that's cool that's cool and so 300 people in the group can you share a little bit about how much you're paying for ads how much like a group member costs and what what kind of revenue you're expecting yeah always tweaking that and i will say the difference here is that the group is more about the lower ticket coaching that I do, I get the higher ticket, like consulting on a like company level with the whole executive team, more through group posts and other groups, because it's a much broader reach. And so mainly because I don't have any like investors or major founders in my group, it's more about starters, and people who are really trying to find product market fit still. So it's just a different stage problem. So all that said, right now, I'm at about five bucks to get them in, into the, the group. From there, I'm still rolling out my group program with the executive coach I mentioned. That's actually where I plan to monetize them a bit more because it's a scalable program. I launched the one-on-one -on -one coaching last fall. I mentioned the guy who kind of gave the SaaS idea and then I've been coaching on and a couple other clients that I closed on a similar program. It's just not as scalable, right? Because it's one-on-one. -on -one. And so that's why I've switched to this group model. And that's where we're pushing to convert, you know, as many as we can of these 300 people, as well as everybody else in the group to this, this group format, which is really cool because it's a group mastermind, uh, which I'm personally a part of in another one where you get this effect of more than just you and the coach. And it's, you get to hear questions that you wouldn't have thought to ask and you get to hear the input on those. And so the group element is a really nice feature that we'll be adding. Cool. You mentioned uh, something uh, like 15 minutes ago, like revenue generating questions or I didn't... Activities. Activities. R RGAs. Yeah, I have it in my calendar every day. RGAs. But on the one hand, you know, you like you have uh, revenue generating activities, which is like replying to those interesting topics, your VAs flag, but that's also the flagging of those topics. There's also a science behind that. What, how do you... Yeah, there's a calibration period. They've gotten to know me. They've watched probably hours of my content at this point of all my my videos. And so they really like know me and they're good at understanding and really getting in the head to, of my avatar, my ideal customer profile. So I have a document that outlines like, what does this person do in their free time? 
Like it's very specific. It's like, what kind of car do they drive? I want to get in the head of like, where's this person at? And because again, this is where the scarcity can creep in. You're like, what? That's insane. What car do they drive? But it's like, there's enough people, my ideal person, they drive that level of car and that's who I want. And so you just have to remember that there are enough people like that. And so they get to know that profile that I'm after and they get to, you know, there's keywords they're looking for, but it is kind of a calibration period over time when a new client comes in with the service. Like we have people on this service with the VAs, like all kinds of niche. Like one guy is a record producer. Like he helps people produce music. He, that's his program. And the VAs with the system help him get high ticket clients. So it's it's not like just software, just SaaS based. And so that's the service you're delivering. You mentioned the, the name already. Just launched it like two weeks ago. Yeah, it's like brand Vamos? new. Vamos? Yeah, VAM-OS.com. Virtual assistant machine operating system is the idea. And so it's like, it's a whole process and a method and an operating system for of people in the loop of software. So it's not purely software as a service. We're actually calling it software and a service because it's people and software. So that's what, what we're doing. It's still very new, but so far people are like really into it because everybody else on the Facebook side that are already doing this kind of work, they're tired of that slog too, of like doing these RGAs, posting, you know, they're, they're spending maybe 10 plus hours a week doing it. And so it's perfect, you know, opportunity for someone who's trained and quick to do this kind of thing. So you have you have a bunch of people who are like VAs to you know a wide range of people. You you've trained them before, and then you also have like an onboarding experience for the people they do the work for. So we're still figuring this out. Like I said, it's two weeks. This is fresh, but essentially with our early customers, we got a handful of them already. Basically, we have a flow where they go through, they subscribe, and then they need to actually log in. We provision a virtual machine. They need to log into that virtual machine into their Facebook. And so what this enables is that no one knows their password. So there's no password sharing. And the VM is actually provisioned near where they live. So it doesn't raise any sort of flags about logins and random places in the Philippines or anything. So there's a two layers of safety that people like, because they don't, they're like, I don't want to get locked out. You know, this is a, so hopefully Zuckerberg's not listening to this podcast, but this is what we do. And so basically it's secure because it looks like it's you. They don't even know your password. And that's that. So they log into the VM and then virtual assistant's just doing his thing or her thing, you know, every day, running through that SOP, logging everything in Organize, which is that spreadsheet. And then the client just comes in, the customer just sees, here's all the posts they engaged with. Here's what I should add value to. Here are the open conversations. Here's who I should follow up with. And then probably most importantly, give feedback directly to the virtual assistant over chat. Say like, hey, this is not a good example, but this is. And really to get, get it better over time. I think the only thing better than artificial intelligence is actual intelligence. So that's what we're leaning into here. Interesting. I think a lot more people should get into the RGAs. I, I need to do a lot more RGA work. And if you can skip a lot of, you know, the, the leg work, it's perfect. Yeah. And, you know, on the topic of RGAs, there's a big shift for me to remember that fulfillment does not grow your business. Doing the thing that is the actual product and the sale is not actually what grows the business. And I was like, at first I was like, what? I mean, you got to do this. But it's like, if you don't have the revenue generating activities, the business dies. There's no new stuff coming to the door. So you can always delegate the fulfillment. That's where you kind of want to start when it comes to like, how can I level up and not be the one doing everything? I mean, there was a period, this is like a little, little side anecdote. There was a period of time where I realized I was underselling. This was like a subconscious thing. I didn't even notice 
took it took weeks to realize this. I was underselling. I was not closing the sale, and I was like, "What the hell's going on?" I had a whole month drought. I was not closing the sale because I was overwhelmed on the fulfillment side. I was worried. I was like subconscious. I was like, "I can't even if I sell this, I can't even do it." What am I? So that was messing with my sales calls. So once I realized, I was like, "I need more help. I need to hire." And so I brought more in the team. Then I started killing the sales calls because I felt like I had the support behind me to fulfill. So that was a huge shift. You had a mental bandwidth. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so that's kind of the struggle of like the solopreneur to like, you know, CEO where you realize like you can't do it all. You can't wear all the hats. And so I think a lot of people in the startup land suffer from that and they need to like realize what they can let go and sooner rather than later. Cool, Todd. This is very cool. Uh, where can people find you? Check out salesandsoftware.com. Check out the Sales and Software Solo Founders uh, group on Facebook. Remote Branch on Twitter. I'm in a few different places. But yeah, I would say those are the, the best places to find me for now. Cool. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me on. This is a lot of fun to reflect on this and talk about it. That's a wrap on this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss our next show. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave an iTunes review and give us a shout out on Twitter, sharing your favorite part of this episode. See you again next week. <laughs>